Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, March 9th reading of the Colorado Sun. My name is Jeannie DeMarinas. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. Federal Board defers vote to rename Mount Evans to Mount Blue Sky at request of tribal government. Followed by, as Eisenhower Tunnel turns 50, Colorado celebrates with talk of a facelift for the crucial I-70 link. Then, Many Colorado teachers dig into their own pockets to buy classroom supplies. The state soon may pay them back. Followed by Health, Jeannie Ritter, Colorado's former First Lady, is still working to break mental health stigma. We will be following up with other miscellaneous articles. Equity. Federal Board defers vote to rename Mount Evans to Mount Blue Sky at request of tribal government. A request by a tribal government to have a consultation delays the vote to change the controversial name of 14,000-foot peak west of Denver by Titania Flowers. In an unexpected twist Thursday morning, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names deferred a vote that would have changed the name of Mount Evans. Many had expected the Federal Board to approve the new name, Mount Blue Sky, proposed by many Native American tribal leaders and representatives, Governor Jared Bullock. Polis and a Colorado renaming board and other community members. But Thursday morning before the federal board's meeting, Jennifer Runyon, executive acting secretary for the U.S. Board on Geographic Names, said the federal board had, quotes, received a request from a tribal government for government-to-government consultation and that a decision had been made to defer a final vote. The U.S. Board did not initially say which tribe asked for the request. At the start of the meeting Thursday, the Federal Board notified attendees that no decision would be made and there would not be any discussion about the pending proposals for Mount Evans. In the Federal Geographic Renaming Board had voted, the organization's decision would have marked the end of a lengthy process to give the prominent 14er visible from Denver a much less controversial label. As you know, the proposals that have been submitted to the U.S. Board on geographical names to change the name of Mount Evans have been added to the docket for a vote at today's meeting. However, the Board on Geographic Names and the Department of the Interior have received a request from a tribal government for federal to government consultation. In accordance with the Department of Interior Department Manual 512 DM 5.5 A6 titled 
Intergovernmental Relations Procedures for Consultation with Indian Tribes. The decision is made to defer today's vote on the Mount Evans name change and Susan Lyon, Vice Chair of the Board. The manual states, quotes, a tribe may request that the department initiate consultation when the tribe believes that a bureau or office is considering a departmental action with tribal implications, Lyons said. So no decision will be made on Mount Evans today, and we won't be discussing any of the pending proposals. I think the time is long past due for acknowledgement that that is not an appropriate name, Clear Creek County Commission Chairman Randy Wheelock said on Wednesday night. He co-led from November 2020 to March 2022 educational, public comment, and deliberation meetings before Clear Creek County officials recommended the new Mount Blue Sky name to the Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board. On Thursday morning, he said he had no comment about the deferral until he and other local officials had more information. Generally speaking, my attitude was, and the board's attitude was, that we were giving the biggest credence to the two indigenous proposals. And when they didn't combine and agree on one proposal, we looked at the level of support that each of them had, and there was much, much greater support that we saw from both the indigenous community and the non-indigenous community for Mount Blue Sky. And so that was the reason we went ahead and made the choice, Wheelock said on Wednesday night before the vote was deferred. For some Native American Coloradans, renaming the peak has been a decades-long process, and for state officials and other community members who engaged in research to support four other name change proposals for the Clear Creek County landmark, the process has taken more than a year to complete. The renaming process so far has aimed to strip former Governor John Evans' name from the 14,265-foot landmark. Evans, who served as territorial governor from 1862 to 1865, was forced to resign for his role in the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre a deadly attack on Native Americans that led to the deaths of more than 230 Cheyenne and Arapaho people, mostly women, children, and older adults. The Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board in November voted unanimously to change the name to Mount Blue Sky, a move supported by Clear Creek County officials, Colorado Governor Jared Polis, and many Native American tribe leaders and members who contributed to the renaming process. Anne Hayden, John Evans' great-great-granddaughter, noting that she did not represent all members of her family, testified at a public meeting about renaming the peak and said she favored changing its name. Governor Polis earlier this month wrote in a letter to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names that each of the 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado deserves, quotes, 
a name befitting their majesty. While many Coloradans have grown up knowing the name Mount Evans, Polis wrote, it's clear that people want a new name that unites the community and does not divide it. In a letter, Polis cited research by scholars at the University of Denver and Northwestern University, both of which Evans helped found, saying their work showed, quotes, Evans' culpability for the Sand Creek Massacre without question. During the formal process to consider renaming the peak, Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board members received more than 200 written and verbal statements from Native American tribe leaders, local government officials, community members, and loved ones of those who perished in or survived the Sand Creek Massacre. Chris Arend, a spokesman for the State Naming Board, wrote in an email to the Colorado Sun on Wednesday. Considering there were six proposals and hours of public testimony, it was clear that there was a strong shared desire to rename Mount Evans, he wrote in an email. Ultimately, Mount Blue Sky struck the appropriate chord to garner support of Clear Creek County, the Colorado Renaming Advisory Board, and Governor Polis. Transportation. As Eisenhower Tunnel turns 50, Colorado celebrates with talk of a facelift for the crucial I-70 link. The highest point anywhere on I-70, the westbound tunnel, and its eastbound twin have provided safe passage through the mountain for millions of vehicles. By Joshua Perry Thousands of vehicles travel through Eisenhower Tunnel on Interstate 70 each day, but on Wednesday, for a brief moment, the traffic stopped to let just three pass. A 1970 Plymouth Fury police cruiser, an antique fire truck, and an MG sports car of similar vintage. The procession was part of the Colorado Department of Transportation's celebration of the Eisenhower Tunnel's 50th anniversary. Since the tunnel opened on March 8th, 1973, millions of cars have crossed under the Continental Divide through the passage. When the ribbon was cut, the 44.3 foot high and 47.5 foot wide tunnel with a 110 million price tag was the most expensive highway project ever embarked on by the U.S. government. Three men died during the five years of construction. Colorado Department of Transportation Executive Director Shoshana Liu said the Eisenhower Tunnel provided a safe, accessible alternative to driving on riskier mountain passes and changed the character of the state forever. For the last five decades, 50 years, the Eisenhower Tunnel has served as a great connector, tying east and west together in Colorado, she said. Speaking to a small crowd at the tunnel's eastern opening, it has provided a critical life-saving link moving goods and services and helped to mark Colorado as a world-class mountain destination. Many travelers through the tunnel might not realize that it's more than just a simple passageway through the mountains. Managing the one point 
1.7-mile passage requires a control room where operators monitor the flow of traffic on walls and screens, a generator room, a sprinkler system, a water treatment system, and even a fire truck. Jessica Michelbust, Colorado Department of Transportation's Denver Metro Region Director, said the look of the tunnel through which 524,151 vehicles passed last month can be deceiving. It is an around-the-clock operation with men and women with special technical expertise who keep the tunnel open and safe, she said. Since the tunnel opened in 1973, we have not had one fatality in either of the tunnels. At 50, there's a certain historical charm to the look and feel of the Eisenhower Tunnel, but it's also in need of regular maintenance and maybe a makeover. Much of the equipment inside the tunnel, like its 600 horsepower industrial fans, all 28 of them, capable of producing hurricane force winds to clear noxious fumes, is original, or at least old. As part of Colorado Department of Transportation's 10-year plan for infrastructure investment, the Eisenhower Tunnel and its eastbound partner, the slightly younger Johnson Tunnel, will have a $150 million update completed by 2024. Some minor work already has been done, but more robust renovation projects like an automatic de-icing system are slated to begin soon. Colorado Department of Transportation spokesperson Presley Fowler said, however, it still be the tunnel Colorado has loved for 50 years, she said. We don't want to change the look and feel of the tunnel, she said. That's really been an important aspect while planning these infrastructure upgrades and repairs, making sure to honor the history. For decades, the tunnel has made traveling through the mountains much safer and efficient, Colorado Department of Transportation spokeswoman Tamara Rollison said. In her view, Colorado wouldn't be the state it is today without this critical link through its alpine reaches. It's hard for me to say what it's going to be like in 50 years from now for the tunnel, but it will be here continuing to serve the state. I'm sure of that, Rollison said, and it will continue to be a vital connection for years to come. Education. Many Colorado teachers dig into their own pockets to buy classroom supplies. The state may soon pay them back. A bipartisan bill would give 50,000 public school teachers an income tax credit of up to $1,000 to reimburse personally incurred expenses by Erica Brunlin. Everywhere you look in Lucy Squire's classroom, you can spy the teacher's touch. Strands of light carefully strung down the ceiling cast the room in a calming glow. Curtains fashioned from greenish-blue bedsheets soften sunlight pouring in through the windows. Shelves of books sit organized in the back corner. Squire, a third-grade teacher at Copper Mesa Elementary School in Highlands Ranch, purchased the lights, makeshift drapes, and many of the books that help make her classroom what she calls our home 
away from home for our kids. She also bought many of the basics that make it a classroom in the first place. Dry erase markers, bulletin boards, a stool where she can sit while teaching at her whiteboard, a dark pink director's chair that has lasted almost all of her 18 years of reading aloud to students, and bookcases that hold hundreds of books in her class library. It seems like the expectation is just that we spend our money for whatever we need, said Squire who earlier in her career would drop more than $500 on her classroom and has tried to scale back her personal spending to less than $200 per school year. I try to just keep it to the basics of what I need and just whatever I need throughout the years as it comes up. A bipartisan group of lawmakers wants to ease the financial burden with legislation that would provide an income tax credit Two public school educators aimed at reimbursing them for classroom supplies, costs tied to professional development, continuing education, extra educational materials, and field trips. House Bill 1208 would grant a $1,000 income tax credit to educators who teach an entire school year and a 500 credit to teachers in the classroom for half a year. The credit would be available in 2023, 2024, 2025, and 2026 and could benefit nearly 50,000 licensed public school teachers per year including educators at charter schools, according to State Representative Bob Marshall, a Highlands Ranch Democrat and lead sponsor of the bill. The bill could lower state revenues by an estimated maximum of $50 million each year if all 50,000 eligible teachers apply for and get the $1,000 credit. The credit is refundable, meaning that if the amount of the credit is larger than what the teacher owes in taxes, they would receive a check for the difference. The measure won't solve low teacher pay, lawmakers acknowledge, but it's a step that inches them towards better compensation. It's not a home run in the game, Marshall said. It's a nice base hit, a nice hit for a win to get on the base. A thousand bucks in every teacher's pocket in the public school system how can that not be a win? The measure wouldn't really affect Colorado's budget in years when the taxpayer's Bill of Rights cap on government growth and spending is exceeded. It would, however, lower the amount of money available for taxpayer refunds. In the years when Tabor cap isn't exceeded, the measure would reduce the amount of money legislators have to spend on other priorities. Public education needs to be funded by the public, and our education system in Colorado has fallen way behind from where it was, Marshall said. There has been an ongoing issue for 50 years where they shouldn't have been paying out of their pockets for these expenses, he added. Representative Matt Soper, Republican Delta, has seen firsthand how much educators sacrifice so their students have what they need to learn. Sober, another lead sponsor of the bill, watched as his mother, who taught in Delta Public Schools for 40 years, and two great aunts took part of their pay and put it back into their students, despite not seeing pay increases. They didn't even think twice, and it was all about putting kids first, Soper said. 
He noted that income tax credits are a way to thank teachers and boost the money they receive when lawmakers are limited in how much they can directly influence teacher pay across the state. In line with Colorado's focus on local control, individual school boards set their own educator salaries. We can't just pass an educator funding bill in Colorado and actually have it hit the back pockets of the teachers because so much of our education is localized and based in the local school board, Soper said. Senator Janice Rich, Republican Grand Junction, is also a lead sponsor of House Bill 1208 after running a separate teacher funding bill earlier this legislative session that was rejected. That legislation sought to reimburse teachers for classroom expenses up to $500, but not for continuing education. Sometimes teachers can't wait for special books or special needs for some of their students, and so they go ahead and they expend some of their own money to help students, said Rich, who also comes from a family of teachers, so I think they should be compensated for that. Marshall said he has received pushback from some public education advocates who are more narrowly focused on paying down debt the state has owed to schools since 2010, when it implemented a budgeting tool known as the Budget Stabilization Factor during the Great Recession. The tool allows the General Assembly to allocate two schools each year less than what they are owed, for the current school year, legislators owe schools $321 million. Making more dents in the debt has been a priority of Governor Jared Polis, which he cited in his State of the State address in January. Anything that distracts from that, they don't like, Marshall said. Other opposition has come from public education advocates who are wary of tax credits altogether, he said. Marshall is adamant that the income tax credits would make a significant difference for teachers, particularly since money would be funneled directly to them. It goes straight to them, he said, adding, get the money in the teachers' pockets. That's the bottom line, right? Our educators are hurting. The Colorado Education Association, the state's largest teachers' union, backs the legislation so that more money can flow to educators, some of whom purchase more than paper, pencils, and other supplies for their students, reaching deeper into their pockets to buy food, winter coats, and shoes for kids, said CEA President Amy Baca Olert. Basic survival things, Baca Olert said, so it goes beyond basic classroom expenses. Medical professionals aren't asked to buy their own equipment to tend to patients, she noted. Neither should teachers, she said. Our educators are hurting, Baca Olert said. We're seeing it play out in so many ways, from the educator shortage to the high-stress, low morale that our educators are saying they're experiencing. And so when we can do things at the legislative level to alleviate those pressures to provide some relief to our educators, we should. Squire of the Highlands Ranch Elementary School has stretched her creative side as much as possible to avoid straining her budget, crafting bulletin boards out of fabric that she can wash and reuse instead of making them with paper or cork.
She has stitched together her classroom library book by book, buying a couple hundred on her own, inheriting many from a teacher who transitioned into a different position, swapping books with other educators, and using points from publishing company Scholastic to get new books to add to her collection. We don't make a whole lot of money, especially compared to the amount of work we do and the hours we put in, said Squire, whose entire teaching career has unfolded at Copper Mesa, Mesa Elementary School. If you were to compare our hours and our workload to people in the business world or other professionals, I think we definitely drew the short stick. It should be better. It should be better set up so that we have all the resources we need to support our kids. Squire has also completed college classes to meet state requirements for renewing her teacher's license. She earned nine credit hours last summer and is currently pursuing another six credit hours. Each three credit hour class costs $400. That adds up very quickly, Squire said. Squire has paid upfront and received tuition reimbursement through her district Douglas County School District. The income tax credit in House Bill 1208 would also cover those tuition costs. She supports the legislation so that personal funds she would otherwise divert to her classroom and profession can, can go to her family instead. If you put your money with the people, Squire said, won't you have a better impact? House Bill 1208 is scheduled to get its first hearing in the House Education Committee on March 23rd. Staff writer Jesse Paul contributed to this report. Health. Jeannie Ritter, Colorado's former First Lady, is still working to break mental health stigma. Ritter recently retired after a decade at Denver's Community Mental Health Center, where she continued her efforts to get people to open up about their struggles. By Jennifer Brown. Jeannie Ritter jokes that she could have chosen bicycle helmets as her first lady cause, while her husband Bill was in was Colorado governor. At least she could have counted the number of children who received a helmet and declared her goal achieved. Instead, the former teacher, who grew up in a family affected by severe mental illness, chose something much messier. She spent four years traveling Colorado to talk about mental health, ditching the pantsuits early on for a jean jacket and cowboy boots, all part of her plan to seem more approachable and get people to open up about their struggles. When the Ritters left the governor's mansion in 2011, the former first spouse, continued her mission, becoming a mental health ambassador for WellPower, which is Denver's community mental health center. For the next decade, she spoke to clubs and forums across the state and co-chaired a task force that helped rewrite Colorado's civil, civil commitment laws. Ritter, 64, recently retired, but remains an advocate for increased access to mental health care. In an interview with The Sun at her home in Denver's Platte Park, Ritter praised the new law, law signed by Governor Jared Polis that will allow psychologists to write mental health prescriptions. She also explained how artificial intelligence software could help overworked therapists determine which messages are the most urgent 
based on the stress in the caller's voice. Ritter is credited with elevating conversation quite literally at a time when mental health crisis wasn't a universal topic. When her husband took office in 2007, she attended mental health policy discussions in churches and basements. Later, she said she was pushing the elevator button to the highest floor in the building, like floor 12, to talk to executives and policymakers. Ritter spoke to the Sun about what's become a lifelong goal to break stigma and build access to mental health care in Colorado. Here is part of that conversation, edited for length and clarity. Sun. Like many others, when Ritter talked about the importance of mental health reform, she referenced one person in her family with severe illness. Then she realized a year or so after becoming Colorado's first spouse that she was thinking about it all wrong. Ritter's sister had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and the family grew up navigating mental hospitals, medications, and stigma. After their mother died, Ritter took over caring for her sister and even moved her and her two chihuahuas into the governor's mansion to help get her stabilized. Ritter, I have a correction to make because during that time I often cited my sister who had a diagnosis. We were a family that navigated that whole thing. Institutions were new again and the meds and just as the severity of her illness and how it impacted each of us. And then I heard a woman speak, and her point was, it's not just one person in your family. Then I realized she was right, like I was trying to talk about this topic in a more narrow fashion, about an individual when, if I stepped back, it was like, wait a minute, what about the addiction in our family? What about my own anxiety? So that was a very helpful to shift from talking about those individuals to all of us who are somewhere on the continuum. Son, unlike counting bike helmets, success is hard to measure when it comes to improving mental health. Ritter acknowledges that she didn't accomplish some of her big ideas, including trying to coordinate all of the state suicide prevention programs under one agency. Ritter, there were things I thought I could change. I had a dreamy vision of unifying all the suicide prevention efforts in the state, which are heartbreaking. But one is named for Rachel, and the other is named for Jason, and another is the name for this school. But what I celebrate is the link to science. Let's start with compassion and try to get to an understanding. But when brain science came on board, that was just fantastic. People could understand the impacts of brain injuries and soldiers returning from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with concussion injuries from explosives. We were normalizing it. Son. In 2007, Ritter felt like she was walking on eggshells the first few times she was invited to give speeches about mental health or attend conferences where sometimes men were in one room and she was in another talking to their wives. She didn't want to say the wrong words to offend people. She also did not feel like an expert at all, but she realized quickly that her first goal was to get people to open up. Ritter. People were like, uh, she's a first lady, let's put her on this. And I was totally unprepared. 
I would finish with smaller groups. Are there any questions? We can make this into a conversation. It was button lips, like nobody had anything to say, and I'm like, hey, this is crusty stuff, like maybe you don't even recognize your husband. He's knocking off a six-pack in front of the TV every night falling asleep. This could be depression. He's the only one at work, and everybody else has lost their job, and he's got no cronies and men that are crappy at making friends, and nobody would say anything. And then, when you go into the restroom, they pounce on you. They're like, oh, I can't believe you said that because it's just what my husband is doing. But there's no way they were going to raise their hand. No one wanted to be first. Son. Ritter said, every community needs more people in a variety of jobs, from firefighters and bus drivers to teachers and coaches, who are trained in how to help get people to the right mental health services. Ritter, I have firefighter friends, and they're like, it's the worst thing. People step over somebody who's passed out and dial 911. Everybody has to respond, which is a huge cost. So, what if you had a way to say, this young man, this young woman, needs some support? I'm not going to be the one, but there is a number I can call where somebody can come and check on them. They are bus drivers, and they think she's drunk. We're all in this together. You get this line. I didn't take this job to be a counselor. That's not what we're asking you to do. We just want you to know what to do next. Somebody had a great line. We're a small community. We don't have a burn unit in this community. But we need people in this community that, when we have somebody who is in a serious burn, who is a serious burn victim, they know what to do with that burn victim immediately and where to get them next. What a great template for how we provide care. Son, in the dozen years after her husband was governor, people have gotten much more outspoken about mental health. When a young relative was going through severe depression, Ritter stepped in to help her get an appointment. Several members of the older generation wanted to keep it quiet, but the young person posted about the SAG on her social media account. It was an example of how much more open the conversation has become, Ritter said. Ritter, name me a gathering? You can't have a city council meeting. You can't have a school board meeting without it. This is a topic now that lives amongst us. And how long do we want to use the word crisis with it? It's valuable sometimes to use the word crisis. It's okay to say the word crisis as long as we're not hiding behind that word. We get to flap our hands and it's like hands on the cheeks. But using the word crisis, it's legit as long as it keeps the conversation moving forward. Jennifer Brown. Jen is a co-founder and reporter at The Sun, where she writes about mental health, child welfare, and social justice issues. Her first journalism job was at the Hungry Horse News in her home state of Montana before moving on to reporting jobs in Texas and Oklahoma. She worked for 13 years at the Denver Post, including several years on the investigative projects team before helping to create The Sun in 2018. Jen is a graduate of the University of Montana and loves hiking, skiing, and watching her kids' sports. Email jennifer at colorado.sun.com.
www.thepeopleshow.com. Coloradans. Want to be a journalist one day? Applications open for the Sun's 2023 Rise and Shine Teen Workshop. The free workshop, designed for middle and high schoolers across the state, will teach students how to find stories, interview sources, master storytelling, photograph subjects, and more. By Erica Brunland. Up to 15 students across Colorado can spend a week of their summer exploring their curiosity, learning how to investigate news tips, and polishing their storytelling skills in the Colorado Sun's third annual Rise and Shine Journalism Workshop. Applications for the free workshop, which will be held June 12th through 16th over Zoom, open Thursday and can be found here. The Sun introduced the summer camp in 2021, guiding students through the fundamental, fundamental skills of journalism, including reporting, writing, filling, filing public records requests, photojournalism, and social media engagement. Students who also learned about the importance of media ethics were paired with professional journalists who mentored them through the week. Students will learn in interactive workshops taught by professional reporters, editors, photojournalists, and others in the media industry. Journalists will help them understand how to begin asking thoughtful questions about the world around them and finding stories worth writing about. Participants will also be exposed to different career paths in journalism and will focus on honing the writing, artistic, business, and digital skills needed for newsrooms. They will complete courses taught by journalists who work for newspapers, online news outlets, and radio and TV stations. They will learn how to engage readers with compelling writing, hear from reporters about how to find sources, and ask the right questions, become familiar with photography, techniques, better understand how to use social media to find story ideas and share their own work and learn how to take care of their mental health as a journalist and much more. This year, the Rise and Shine workshop is open to 15 students who meet the following criteria. Live in Colorado, will be in middle or high school in the fall, have an interest in journalism, Prior experience in student journalism is not required. The Colorado Sun welcomes students of all experience levels, including those who have never considered pursuing journalism and are curious about how they can apply their skills and interests to a career in media. Applicants from the underrepresented and diverse communities are encouraged to apply. The Colorado Sun will provide assistance to students who may have difficulties accessing, accessing a computer or device and a reliable internet connection. The application is due by 6 p.m. April 21st. Participants will be notified no later than May 5th. Submit your application here. For questions about the workshop, contact reporter Erica Brunlin at erica at coloradosun.com. Sports. 82-year-old Colorado man charged with netting $800,000 from sale of fake Michael Jordan cards. Mayo Gilbert McNeil was arrested in Denver by the Associated Press.
New York. An 82-year-old Colorado man was charged Wednesday with selling and trading fake Michael Jordan basketball cards in a scheme that prosecutors said resulted in him making more than $800,000 over four years. Mayo Gilbert McNeil was arrested in Denver, where he lives, after a complaint was unsealed in federal court in Brooklyn, charging him with conspiracy to commit wire fraud, according to the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office. McNeil was accused of making numerous fraudulent deals beginning in 2015, including the 2019 sale of a counterfeit card to a victim in Manhasset, New York, for $4,500, and a a 2017 deal in which he traded two counterfeit cards for two authentic Tom Brady football cards. Mr. McNeil defrauded sports memorabilia collectors of more than $800,000 by intentionally misrepresenting the authenticity of the trading cards he was peddling when, in fact, they were counterfeit. Michael Driscoll, assistant director in charge of the FBI's New York field office, said in a news release. In a brief phone call, McNeil said he was released without bail after initial appearance in U.S. District Court in Colorado. I did nothing wrong, he said, declining to comment at length. Prosecutors said he will appear in a New York courtroom at a later date. Environment. When it comes to Colorado's air pollution, why not blame Utah? The Environmental Protection Agency does. The federal agency refuses to approve Utah's clean air plans until they stop violating, quotes, good neighbor rules by sending ozone east to the front range by Michael Booth. There's a new strategy in Colorado's fight against dangerous ozone pollution. Blame Utah. Coal-fired power plants and oil and gas drilling in northeastern Utah are responsible for ozone drifting to the east into Colorado's nine-county non-attainment zone for the pollutant, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. The amount of ozone that Utah is pumping towards Colorado violates the federal, quotes, Good Neighbor Rules of Clean Air Act which have been used in the past to force eastern states to clean up coal plants to help downwind states. The Environmental Protection Agency rejected Utah's state implementation plan for cutting ozone in February and told the state to prepare more cuts, including adding expensive scrubbing equipment to a handful of coal-powered plants in Utah and Wyoming. Utah's legislature agreed something needed to be done and set aside $2 million for legal fees to sue the Environmental Protection Agency and avoid the extra cleanup. Utah is not being a good neighbor, said Robert Ukele, senior senior attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity, a nonprofit that works extensively on air pollution issues and the Clean Air Act. The neighbors, in the form of Utah General Attorney's declined comment, citing this lawsuit Utah filed in February to block the Environmental Protection Agency bad neighbor declaration. 
In voting to fund the lawsuit, Utah lawmakers argued that the Environmental Protection Agency ruling would force closures of vital power plants. Though environmental groups say effective control equipment can greatly reduce pollutants. Colorado environmental groups want the Colorado state government to intervene with the Environmental Protection Agency in favor of the Utah restrictions. Backing up the Environmental Protection Agency should be part of Colorado's overall ozone fight, which they say should also include tougher restrictions at home on front-range oil and gas drilling and transportation emissions. It's the equivalent of free money in the difficult battle to reduce ozone, which has been declining but then leveled off and began rising again in recent years. There's an opportunity for Colorado to join in a lawsuit to help reduce pollution, but the Polis administration has decided not to, UK Lee said. Colorado regulators said in a statement they are monitoring the good neighbor case against Utah. We have not joined the Environmental Protection Agency good neighbor suits in the past, according to a Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment spokesperson. We are laser focused on continuing the work to protect clean air in Colorado for all. It's too bad, Ukele added. States on the East Coast join such lawsuits frequently in order to bolster the case against their ill-behaving neighbor states. But Colorado never does that, he said. The Environmental Protection Agency's proposed restrictions on Utah, which the agency says would take effect in mid-March, are part of a sweeping effort to declare good neighbor sanctions for 26 states under the Clean Air Act. The Environmental Protection Agency reduced the ceiling on cities' ozone allowances in 2015 to 70 parts per billion, with some scientists arguing the limit should be far lower to protect human health. An Environmental Protection uh, Fact Sheet accompanying the Good Neighbor proposal said it will cut ozone contributing nitrogen by 29% from power generation across those states, saving lives, reducing asthma, and preventing other respiratory illness. By 2026, the Environmental Protection Agency says the rules would eliminate up to 1,000 premature deaths, 2,400 hospital and emergency room visits, and 1.3 million cases of asthma symptoms. The Environmental Protection Agency's justification for the new Good Neighbor rulings published in the Federal Register said the agency's well-established monitoring methods show Utah contributing more than 1% threshold of regulated substances to other states. Its highest level contribution is 1.29 parts per billion to Douglas County, Colorado, the Environmental Protection Agency said. The number appears small, but the Colorado Air Quality Control Commission and the Regional Air Quality Council spend countless hours discussing strategies and policies to potentially shave a part or two 
per billion off summer ozone levels in the Front Range non-attainment area. Readings in recent summers have spiked above 8 ppb at some of the monitors. Some recent policy efforts have focused on reducing ozone, causing emissions from small engine lawn and garden equipment, which state officials estimate contribute about 2.5 ppb to daily summer ozone. The Colorado oil and gas industry, seeking to head off further regulation, has pointed to the same state emissions list that attributes more than half of the daily ozone to, quotes, background sources, including naturally occurring ozone and precursors blown in from out of state, including the West Coast and Asia. One of the Environmental Protection Agency's proposed solution to ozone problems in other states has been a, quotes, cap-and-trade program, where a state in violation of good neighbor policies must set an overall limit on emissions, such as nitrogen oxide. Companies, including power generators, then decide what is the most efficient way for them to reach those limits, whether buying and installing scrubby, scrubbing equipment or acquiring credits from other companies that are below their limits. Environmental groups call the Good Neighbor Rule some of the most effective tools the Environmental Protection Agency has to combat ozone. And note that the 2023 Environmental Protection Agency proposal for cap and trade adds in new sources to control. Those include engines used in pumping natural gas through pump pipelines, cement kilns, paper mills, and oil and gas refineries. Those rules have saved thousands or tens of thousands of lives by reducing air pollution, Ukele said. If there's any remaining good news for Colorado out of the Environmental Protection Agency's actions, it's that Colorado is not among the 26 states the agency has declared to be a bad neighbor to someone else. You're welcome, Kansas. But Coloradans shouldn't get smug, Ukele said, as long as the state fails to contain its own ozone problems. The Environmental Protection Agency has not found us to be an upwind state, he said. We disagree with that. Politics and Government Jenna Ellis, former Trump attorney, censored by Colorado judge for quotes false statements about 2020 election. Ellis violated a policy prohibiting reckless knowing or intentional misrepresentations by attorneys. Jenna Ellis, the controversial former lawyer for President Donald Trump, was censured Wednesday by Colorado's Office of Attorney Regulation Council for violating a policy prohibiting reckless knowing or intentional misrepresentation by attorneys. She violated this rule when, as counsel to the President Trump and the Trump campaign, she made a number of public statements about the November 2020 presidential elections that were false. A public statement posted on the office's website says, The public censure in this matter reinforces that 
Even if engaged in political speech, there is a line attorneys cannot cross, particularly when they are speaking in a representative capacity. The censure was first reported by Colorado Newsline. Presiding disciplinary judge Byron Large approved a stipulation by Ellis and the Office of Attorney Regulation Counsel that she, quote, undermine the American public's confidence in the presidential election, violating her duty of candor to the public. The stipulation says Ellis made misrepresentations on Twitter and during appearances on Fox Business. Ellis hails from Colorado and was one of the key figures in Trump's effort to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, which Democrat Joe Biden won. She was fired from her job as a Weld County prosecutor in 2013 for making mistakes on cases records obtained by the Colorado Sun showed. Ellis, quotes, failed to meet the employer's expectations and, quotes, made mistakes on the cases the employer believes she should not have made, according to a document from the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. Another record said Ellis, who held the title Deputy District Attorney at the Weld County District Attorney's Office, was fired for unsatisfactory performance. The employer noted some cases were being processed that did not adhere to Victim Rights Act. The State Labor Department document says, There is the appearance in case documentation the claimant did not follow proper protocol for some of the cases she handled. The Victim's Rights Act is a state law that ensures victims are involved in and informed of the case against their assailant. There is also a federal version that offers similar assurances and protections. In August, the Associated Press reported that a Colorado judge ordered Ellis to travel to Georgia to testify before a special grand jury that's looking into whether Trump and others illegally tried to influence the 2020 election in Georgia. Ellis is listed as an advisory fellow in constitutional law and policy work at the Centennial Institute, the nonprofit conservative political think tank associated with Colorado Christian University in Lakewood. Thank you for joining us for the Colorado Sun. My name is Jeannie DeMarinas. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.